All right, the scripture reading for this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, in this section of Galatians, Paul is continuing his warning to the Galatians by drawing their attention to the stark contrast between freedom in Christ and bondage to the law. And in particular, he's driving home the point that to abandon faith in Christ for works of the law at any point is to obligate yourself to keeping the whole law in order to be right with God, which is, consequently, to abandon Christ altogether. And the result of doing so, Paul stresses, is the loss of freedom and a return to the bondage of the law as a means of righteousness. And it's not only an exercise in futility with the gravest of consequences, It is also the saddest of activities for a person who has been set free. Imagine with me for a second a slave that's been set free from the horrors that he had experienced in slavery only to return to the slaveholder and knock on the door and say, let me back in. We'd beg him not to go. We'd beg him not to go, not only by reminding him of the horror of his previous slavery, but also pointing to the blessings that come with freedom. And Paul's doing the same thing here in this passage. For those formerly in one form of spiritual slavery and about to submit themselves to another form of spiritual slavery. And he's he's pointing them to the blessings that are offered in the freedom of that we have in Christ Jesus. So verse one said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. We're asking the question this morning, what's that freedom for? What is this freedom that Paul is talking about? But he begins to unpack. He's gonna take us through the rest of Galatians really unpacking that, but he begins to do so here. What is freedom for? That's the question that we're gonna ask. Paul answers us for us by telling us three things that we're free to do as those who are in Christ. We are free first to rest in Christ's record. We are free to rest in Christ's record. We're free secondly to walk in the way of love. We're free to walk in the way of love. And then third, we are free to hope for the day of Christ's return. So what's freedom for? Freedom to rest in Christ's record, freedom to walk in the way of love, and freedom to hope for the day of Christ's return. That's where we're headed, but first let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this portion of your word, Lord, we thank you that we have Galatians. You knew that we would need it, and that every follower of yours, every church that you've established would need to know the truth that's contained within this book. 
And so we thank you. We ask that you would help us apply it. Would you pour out your spirit in abundance that the truth of this word would be sealed to our hearts and would bear much fruit for your glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul tells us in verses 1 through 4 that we are free to rest in Christ's record, not our own. We're free to rest in Christ's record. And the first thing I want us to notice that Paul's telling us here is that apart from Christ, every religion is a do that leads to death. Every religion of whatever kind is some form of do that leads to death. Take a look at verse 1 with me real quick. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, he says to these Galatians, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, that word again is very interesting. These weren't Jewish people. These weren't people who had adhered to the law of Moses. They're, they're turning to the law of Moses. They're being told by these false teachers that that's the way, ultimately, to know that you're right with God. They were pagans. They adhered to, to pagan religions. They had pagan rituals and pagan feast days and all kinds of things that were associated with their paganism. And Paul says, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's his point that he's making there? What he's telling us there is that every religion is some form of do that leads to death. It doesn't matter, Paul would say, if it's the law of Moses, which is from God and is good. But if handled wrongly, not according to God's will, is a form of do that leads to death. That's what he's been saying throughout, throughout this letter. It doesn't matter if it's the law of Moses used wrongly, even though it's from God and is for our good, or if it's pagan rituals, or the rules of some other religion, or the latest self-help bestseller, which is itself a form of religion, apart from Christ, every form of religion boils down to do. And since God only saves people on the basis of done, anyone who seeks to approach God on the basis of do is doomed. That's the message Paul wants us to get, I think, even from that word again. We're meant to be reminded of that truth. Every attempt to reach God by the way of do is doomed. It is a bondage unto death. So what's the alternative? Rest in Christ's record. Rest in his record. Take a look at verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of, and here's a key idea, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And then look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ who you, would be just, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And so the, this issue of justification, how is one declared justified or right before God? It will either be through faith in Christ, Christ having accomplished that perfect record of righteousness, Christ having fulfilled the law of God at every single point, and then going to the cross, bearing the penalty for our failure to keep the law at every point, right? It's either rest in Christ's record or be severed from Christ, have Christ's record be of no advantage to you, 
and seek to be justified based on your own record, which is an exercise of futility with the gravest of consequences and the saddest of activities for those who are offered freedom in Christ, the freedom to rest in a record that's not your own, (laughs) to never have to wonder, what's my standing with God right now? There are times when we we feel a sense of God's absence because of our sin. That's God graciously treating us as a father, helping us to have a sense of his absence so that we might, by God's grace and the work of his spirit in us, be convicted of our sin and turn to him and have that sense of fellowship restored. All these things are good things that God does. All these are ways in which Christ is of advantage to us. To turn to the law as a means of righteousness is to turn away from every advantage that is ours in Jesus Christ. Rest in Christ's record. John Stott says it so well, if you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. What's the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religion? If you could only be given one or two words to use to distinguish Christianity from every other religion. It is those words, do and done. Every religion apart from Christianity is some form of do. Only Christianity, only in Christianity does God say it is finished. From the cross, it is finished. Only Christianity says done. But secondly, we're free to walk in the way of love. Take a look at verse 6 with me. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, this is Paul being very pastoral. He's writing to people, some of whom, the, the men among them, have been circumcised. They've succumbed to this false teaching that they need to be circumcised, and they do, you know, obey the whole law of Moses in order to be right with God. They've taken that step. And Paul's saying to them, I think, very, very tenderly and very importantly for all of us, it's not about whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It's about what that action points to, which is an attitude by which you're saying, I'm right with God based on my performance. I'm, I'm right with God based upon what I've done. And Paul's saying this issue of circumcision or, or uncircumcision is, you know, adiaphora. It's, it's neither here nor there. It's of, of no consequence ultimately before God. It's what lies behind that that is significant. And that is where are you basing your confidence? Where are you basing your righteousness? It must only be in Christ. There's a... Um, there's an illustration. I, I looked it up. I know I heard this illustration somewhere. Um, but I couldn't find it online, so eh, take it with a grain of salt. But I love it. I love the idea of it. Charles Spurgeon, you know, was, was once asked, or he gave you the illustration in a sermon, um, you know, in terms of our actual righteousness, not, not the alien righteousness that, that is ours, not the righteousness of Christ credited to our account, but our, but our actual righteousness. It would be like, you know, you're reaching into your pockets for coins that aren't there. Like if somebody came along to you and said, where's your righteousness that you speak of? If you were to say, let me show you my righteousness, you'd be reaching in and grabbing only lint. I don't think that that's the way Spurgeon worded it. 
But what Spurgeon would say, if I got my illustration right, and it was certainly true from Scripture, is to look at Christ and say, there's my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. In him, I have the riches of right standing with God. I have the full assurance of my acceptance before God, not because of my performance, not because of my righteousness apart from Christ, but because of his righteousness alone. And if any of you can find the illustration in any of Spurgeon's sermons, please let me know. I want to be able to give credit where credit is due. All right. So instead, Paul Paul says here, we're free to live a life of love. I love this this passage. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through or giving expression to love. Faith produces love. Love is the higher purpose of the law. When Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving neighbor is what we were created to do. You know, the, the, the joy of being a creature before this creator is to operate according to his design for us. That design looks like loving him and loving others. That's, that's a wonderful thing to envision. We, we fall so short because of our, our sin, and yet what Paul is saying here is that that life of love that actually is our heart's desire, what we are wired to do, love God and love others, that's something that faith produces in us. Paul's not saying here, let me give you a new form of works. Don't try to be right with God on the basis of obeying the law. Try to be right with God on the basis of your ability to love. He's not substituting one law for another, one impossible yoke for another. He is saying faith which Paul says in Ephesians is itself a gift from God, actually produces in us love. That very thing that God, you know, requires of us that we fall short of, but that Jesus did perfectly, and so therefore we're counted as those who have always loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and always loved our neighbor as ourselves. That's how God sees us in Christ. But that very thing that he actually That Jesus did perfectly, that that God wants us to walk in is the very thing that faith is producing in us. The faith itself, which is not of our own doing, but is from God. And as Paul says in verse 5, is actually the work of the Spirit operating in and through us. Take a look at verse 5 real quick. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope. And I'm going to talk about the hope in just a second, but don't miss the role of the Spirit. Paul says in verse 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we wait. But if you jump down to verse 22 in chapter 5, we're told there that the fruit of the Spirit is love. The same Spirit of God that is enabling us to be those who wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness is also the very Spirit that is producing in us this life of love. We're free to live a life. 
Okay, so we, we try to be right with God. We try to find a meaningful and purposeful life, even if we're not thinking about God through acts, through works, through things that we do, through acquiring wealth, whatever it is, and it's nothing but bondage. Instead, what we're offered is the ideal life, the life that we were created to live, not as something that we have to acquire, but that God actually is working in us, even as he sees us as those who have already lived that life. If that ain't freedom, I don't know what is. That's the good life that we're invited to live. We're free to live a life of love. But then finally, we are free to hope for the day of Christ's return. Take a look at verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, let's, let's break that down a little bit. I want to remind us about the biblical idea of the word hope. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. I want to talk about this phrase, the hope of righteousness, and then I want to remind us what it means to be eagerly waiting. All right, so first, hope. I mentioned uh, the Old Testament scholar Alec Matir has given a simple way of thinking about the difference between biblical hope and worldly hope, our idea of hope. Our idea of hope is certainty with respect to time, uncertainty with respect to outcome. So the illustration I often use is, you know, if I had a job uh, uh, interview tomorrow, if you had a job interview tomorrow at 1 p.m., you would know that the job interview was at 1 p.m., certainty with respect to time. You wouldn't know whether or not you got the jobs, uncertainty with respect to outcome. Biblical hope flips that around. Certainty with respect to outcome. We know, for instance, that Jesus Christ will return. Uncertainty with respect to time. We don't know when. In the fullness of time, that will happen. But biblical hope is grounded in certainty, not uncertainty. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, you know, that word, hope, that in Hebrews chapter 11 means total assurance, in English means not so sure. Biblical hope is the exact opposite of the way that we tend to think about hope. So there's the idea of hope, something we can be certain of. But then Paul uses this phrase, the hope of righteousness. Now that's interesting because mainly in Paul's writing, and certainly throughout Galatians up to this point, righteousness has always been something that's past tense. Christ has accomplished our righteousness. We're declared righteous in God's sight. The righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. This is what characterizes Paul's writing, and it's all past tense. But now he's he's pointing to something coming. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, I think there's a couple ways that we can appreciate what he's doing there. First of all, these are people who are trying to obtain a righteousness by works of the law which means they felt some lack thereof. And we all do, right? We all know that we fall so short of living a righteous life. And so Paul here is not only pointing to the freedom that we have in Christ, but he he says, as Spurgeon may or may not have said in his illustration, Christ's righteousness is coming. There it is. We, We eagerly wait for the certainty of the coming righteousness of Christ, which is your righteousness. So that, that justification, that right standing that you're seeking to obtain through works that you acutely feel that you lack, it's coming. It's 
coming. You have that standing before God right now, that actual righteousness. It's coming. We eagerly wait for it with certainty that it will come. I think that's one way in which we can think about this you know, hope of righteousness. But again, who is your righteousness? It's Christ himself. To say we wait for the hope of righteousness is just another way of saying we wait for the hope of Christ. He's coming. You see, with Christ will not only come your righteousness, your actual transformation into the image of Jesus Christ, but in Christ, as he comes, will come the renewal of all things, the restoration of all things, a day that will be a day like none that has gone on, but none that has taken place before it, a day that will go on forever in which every day is better than the one that came before, as Lewis says in the last battle. A day is coming with Christ. When Christ comes, all comes with him. Every blessing that is ours from the Father in Christ is finally and fully known. What a day of rejoicing that will be. We eagerly wait for that. Earlier in Galatians, I'm sorry, no, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul, in talking about the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, says we look for or we eagerly watch for a Savior from there. In uh, 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, I believe it's at the end of chapter 4, that we are among those who eagerly watch for his returning, who eagerly long for the return of Christ. That's something that over the last, I don't know, few years, I guess, the Lord has been doing this work in my heart, such that that's my desire, and my desire for us is that we be a people that even as we are working, the, the work of our hands matter, the things that we do on this earth matters, and yet we've always got an eye up toward that far horizon. We've always got this longing within us for that better country, right? We're always living for that day, even as we seek to serve Christ faithfully in this day. So this hope that we have This certainty that we have as we eagerly watch for the hope of our righteousness, who is Christ himself, that is freedom. You place your hope in any other thing. You're not only bound up with the fact that there's all kinds of uncertainty. Will I get the job? There's no certainty that it will take place. And if you do get the job, there's no certainty that it will bring the joy that your heart lacks. And that's true with everything. The marriage, the, the children, the, the, the wealth, the, the house, whatever it may be, there's no certainty of outcome with respect to the joy that your heart seeks. That's not freedom. But in Christ, there is certainty with respect to outcome concerning the joy that your heart seeks. That's freedom. That's freedom. And we don't, we don't work for this righteousness. We don't work for this joy. We don't work for that day. We wait for it. Again, Paul says in verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We are free in our freedom, the freedom that Christ has set us free 
four, we are free to rest in Christ's record. We are free to walk in the way of love, and we are free to hope for the day of Christ's return. In 1738, Charles Wesley was struggling to find peace with God. He had, he had served as a missionary to Georgia, like our Georgia here in, in America. And, you know, it had not gone well. Um, at some point, he came across Peter Bowler. Peter Bowler was the leader of the London Moravians. Peter Bowler asked Charles if he hoped to be saved. What an interesting thing to ask a missionary. But he asked Wesley, do you hope to be saved? And, and you know, Charles Wesley answered that he did. But then Bowler kind of leaned in a little bit. He pressed the issue and said, upon what basis do you hope to be saved? And Wesley replied, because I've used my best endeavors to serve God. And Bowler sadly shook his head and walked away. We know he had that response because Wesley wrote it down in his journal. And then Wesley wrote this, what, are not my endeavors a sufficient ground of hope? Would he rob me of my endeavors? I have nothing else to trust to. Wesley was stuck where the Galatians were stuck and where we so often are stuck ourselves, believing that our efforts, in Wesley's case, his missionary service, in the Galatians' case, and so often in ours, our adherence to a moral code, hoping that God will justify us on the basis of that and abandoning Christ altogether, that is a place of being stuck. Later in 1738, Wesley was given Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. And Wesley recorded in his journal, once again, these words, I spent some hours this evening in private with Martin Luther, who was greatly blessed to me, especially his conclusion of the second chapter. I labored, waited, and prayed to feel who loved me and gave himself up for me. And at some point shortly thereafter, he wrote one of the most famous hymns in the Christian you know, canon, one of the hymns that many of us treasure and love to sing, that hymn, And Can It Be. The last verse of which reads like this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Kevin Twitt, a PCA minister, wrote an article about Wesley and specifically about that hymn, and he ends the article by writing this. Wesley had come to understand that in the gospel, Christ gives us what God requires. Don't ever forget that. In the gospel, Christ gives us what God requires. His perfect righteousness through our union with him. What Christ does, we get credit for. What he deserves, we get. Rather than trusting in our best endeavors, Wesley gives us words to praise God for the only true hope, the righteousness of Christ imputed to his people through faith. This brings us not only hope, but boldness to claim the crown, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done in our place. Brothers and sisters, you are free from all condemnation. 
Whatever condemnation you feel right now this morning, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your record is clean. If you're not, and you feel that sense of condemnation right now, turn to Jesus. That feeling of condemnation that you have, if, you, if you're not a Christian, it's a warning concerning what is coming. Because God is just, he will judge sin, but God is a God of love. He provides shelter in his son, Jesus Christ, for all who turn to him for salvation. Christ bore the wrath from this just God that you deserve. Flee from the wrath that is to come by turning to Jesus for safe haven, for shelter, for salvation, for the best life that will go on forever. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, any condemnation that you feel right now has no place in Christ Jesus. Where there's conviction of sin, return gladly to a father in repentance who loves you. Without fear that he will crush you because he did crush his son on the cross in your place. Return to your father in heaven. Receive from him this love that he has for you stored up in his son Jesus Christ. Enjoy the freedom for which you've been set free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do do ask that you would help us to walk in this freedom that we've been granted. Lord, our, our imagination is so dim. But Lord, your spirit dwells within us. There is much fruit that we're invited to enjoy now. We'll talk soon in Galatians 5 about the fruit of your spirit that dwells in us. There's so much fruit that we're offered to enjoy as those who follow you and love you. And yet so often we're satisfied with lesser things. Lord, would you help us to inhabit the freedom that you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.